I'm Dale Mason, publisher of Answers Magazine, and this is Creation Answers, a podcast of Answers in Genesis, featuring highlights from the award-winning Answers Magazine. Every year, the anniversary of Roe vs. Wade reminds us about the travesty of the 1973 U.S. Supreme Court decision that legalized the killing of innocent human life. Rather than feeling hopeless, this episode reminds us why we should feel hopeful. There are many ways we can stand in the gap for the unborn, not just attack death. The first article, When Does Life Begin?, shows how ingrained the death culture has become. In early 2019, many Americans watched in horror as legislators proposed what were labeled extreme abortion bills. A proposed bill in Virginia would allow a woman to request an abortion up to and through her labor at full gestation if it could be shown the pregnancy impaired her mental or physical health. In New York, a bill was passed that allows a woman to have an abortion on demand up until the time of the child's birth. As the governor signed this bill into law, lawmakers applauded and cheered. That evening, the Empire State Building glowed pink to celebrate this victory for women's rights. While certain legislators rejoiced, even many abortion supporters were appalled at this legislation, believing it went too far. The idea of killing a baby at full term was too grotesque and abhorrent, even for some who support abortion earlier in the timeline of a pregnancy. When dealing with late-term abortions, the pro-abortion lobby cannot hide behind euphemisms such as blob of cells, tissue, pregnancy, or even the mother's body. At 40 weeks gestational age, the baby looks unmistakably like a baby. But what about a baby at fertilization? He or she does not look like a baby and, to our knowledge, cannot feel pain or realize that he or she even exists. That baby is just a single cell. Is it still heinous to end the life of that child? What about a baby at four weeks gestational age? Or six? Or twelve? When does human life really begin? Reproductive science shows that at the moment of fertilization, when the sperm meets the egg, all of the information that builds that person is present. No new information is added. That fertilized egg, known as a fertilized ovum, is a human being with a unique combination of information never before seen in Earth's history. Science can tell us that much, but can it answer the question of when life begins? Some say yes, others disagree. But God's Word provides clarity. Scripture says that all human beings are made in God's image, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and that the unborn are fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139, verse 14, known by God from before their conception, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. The Bible makes no distinction between unborn human life and human life that has passed through the birth canal. Both are human in God's eyes, and therefore stamped with His own image. Is killing a fertilized human egg murder? Absolutely. Life begins at the moment of fertilization. From that instant, a unique human being, created in God's image, has begun his or her life. 
Size and stage of development do not determine life's value. God does. And He values life from the very beginning. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139, verse 16. The title of that article, When Does Life Begin?, really gets at the heart of the abortion issue. The author, Avery Foley, is a staff writer at Answers in Genesis. She moves straight to the point. We must go to God's Word to find the answer. The Bible is clear. All human life is sacred. We are image bearers of our Creator from the very beginning. I highly recommend the Answers in Genesis DVD set, Sanctity of Life, to help you discover answers about abortion, eugenics, embryonic stem cells, euthanasia, and more. Find The Sanctity of Life at AnswersBookstore.com and save at least 10% if you use the promo code PODCAST10, that's PODCAST10, at AnswersBookstore.com. The next article tells three very personal stories of how abortion hurts everyone, from the father and mother to the abortion provider. And yet, God's mercy can shine through even to the most guilty. You've had an abortion. You've worked in an abortion clinic. You were the abortion doctor. Whatever the case, you might wonder if God can forgive you. The answer to any wrongdoer, no matter how grievous the sin, is yes. Only by acknowledging our sin and repenting from it can we find forgiveness and eternal peace in Jesus Christ, the Creator who made us all in God's image and declared the killing of innocent human life a heinous act. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. In Psalm 103, verse 12, the Bible tells us, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's a promise for anyone who turns to God for mercy. It's one thing to make sure we advocate for life and protect the innocent, but we also need to celebrate the Creator's grace and encourage those who have sinned. Never too late for forgiveness. Can you imagine the weight I carry by admitting that we would have a beautiful 26-year-old daughter named Sarah in our lives right now if it wasn't for my decision to go to the abortion clinic? Jeff and Tricia Bradford's story is a typical hometown love story. After college, they met at a local gym and began dating. Eventually, Jeff proposed, and the couple wondered whether peonies or roses should decorate the aisle of their garden wedding. But all their wedding plans came to a quick halt when Trisha learned she was pregnant. Within a week of learning the news, Jeff and Trisha found themselves at a planned parenthood clinic. Trisha remembers sitting in the waiting room and being handed a questionnaire. The very first question asked us to define abortion and I didn't know how to define it. I asked Jeff, and he said to say it was a form of birth control. Jeff remembers the clinic being a cold, dark place. Nobody was there to counsel and say, you two are engaged to be married, and this is your baby. Instead, I made the decision to have the abortion, not wanting to embarrass our families by coming to the wedding pregnant, Jeff explains. Jeff and Trisha married, but they never talked about the abortion. They both had a head knowledge about God having attended churches on a few special occasions, but they didn't know him personally. This went on for several years. Jeff was working as CEO of his own company when one of his employees invited him to church. 
This simple invitation was the turning point for the Bradfords. They heard the gospel clearly and soon trusted Christ as their Savior. For the next nine years, the couple served in the church. Jeff says, When we started serving, we began to really grow our faith in the Lord, not only as our Savior, but as the Lord of our life. After several more years passed, however, Jeff and Trisha realized they were ministering to everyone else and neglecting their own marriage. The couple decided they needed help and visited a Christian counselor. As they sat through counseling, Trisha began crying uncontrollably. She realized her tears and pain were from her abortion 26 years earlier. Entering counseling was the beginning of our healing. It took something that was so dark and something we had suppressed for years and brought it into the light for the first time. When we realized the gravity of what we had done, we at first thought we had committed an unforgivable sin. For Jeff, the realization that he took the life of his own daughter was one of the most painful experiences. Created us men to be protectors, serve others, and to love and fight for the least of these. I allowed my selfishness, fearfulness, and ignorance to get in the way of protecting my wife and daughter. Today, Jeff looks at his four children and always remembers one is missing because of his tragic decision. When God dropped the scales from my eyes, I saw what abortion really is. I witnessed firsthand the devastation it causes men, not just women, as we come to grips with our abortions. After Jeff realized the evils of abortion, he wanted to find a way to serve. I wanted to help other men and women realize that from the moment of fertilization, we are created in God's image and are unique human beings. Although we all fall short often, the Lord forgives our sins when we come to Him and repent. Jeff now works for Human Coalition, a national rescue system working to prevent abortions. One of his favorite stories is about a girl named Robin. Seven years ago, Robin was planning to have an abortion. After meeting with Human Coalition and building a relationship with Jeff and Trisha, she chose life for her daughter. But the blessings multiplied. Recently, Trisha was eating lunch where Robin waits tables. Robin came over and whispered that her co-worker, who was waiting on Trisha, was pregnant and planning on having an abortion. Robin later walked up and explained how Trisha and I had helped her and how grateful she was to have her daughter. The waitress ended up choosing life, and to top it off, we were able to host her a baby shower. Stories of women choosing life encouraged Jeff that there is hope for everyone, even in our worst circumstances. When we expose our sin, repent, and begin to love and serve others, God can use it for His glory. God, in His providence, started us on a wonderful journey to share our testimony and story with others in a way that has brought tremendous healing and redemption for us and others. Hope, even for a Planned Parenthood manager. For 18 years, Sue Thayer worked as a manager at a Planned Parenthood clinic in Storm Lake, Iowa. When I began working for Planned Parenthood, I was convinced that I was serving my community. Sue grew up in a secular home, and her family never talked about abortion. When she saw a job posting to work in a Planned Parenthood clinic, the high pay immediately grabbed her attention. I remember the interviewer asking me what I thought about abortion. Even though I didn't have any biblical understanding at the time, I thought abortion was wrong. I told the interviewer that, and I remember her telling me, until a fetus is viable outside the womb, it's not considered murder. I still have no idea how I got the job. Within a year of working at the clinic, Sue was required to drive three hours to Des Moines, Iowa, and spend the day watching surgical abortions. During an eight-hour day, 
I watched between 25 and 30 surgical abortions. In the first one I observed, they had me stand with my back against the wall by the door. They told me most people faint the first time they watch it. I couldn't see much, but I could hear the suction machine, which was enough. I didn't faint, so they let me get closer at the foot of the bed. After every abortion, clinic workers go to the utility room next door to make sure everything came out of the uterus. She remembers seeing three arms in one jar. I asked the lady I was shadowing why there were more than two arms. She said, oh, it was twins. And no, we don't tell the mother. It only upsets them more. As Sue made the three-hour trek back to Storm Lake, she knew what she had witnessed was wrong. I justified working at Planned Parenthood because my own clinic didn't perform abortions. In fact, like most other rural Planned Parenthood locations in Iowa, we rarely had any medical professional present at all. A nurse practitioner would stop by for two to three hours per week to see clients and sign off on birth control prescriptions. The idea of us performing abortions seemed impossible. Now, as an adoptive parent of three children and a foster mother of 130, Sue remembers encouraging women who visited the clinic that there was always foster care and adoption. But if we were low on our abortion quota, I couldn't say that. We'd try to get them to the clinic in Des Moines. In 2007, everything changed when Sue's manager introduced the idea of webcam abortions. The plan was to turn every Iowa clinic into an abortion clinic by having a doctor in a remote location talk to the women by video on how to use abortion pills. Non-medical staff such as Sue would then perform invasive ultrasounds with minimal training. Her manager told her, if you are breathing, you can do this. It helps if you've played a video game. It's just like running a joystick. Staff members were also sworn to secrecy until 500 to 1,000 webcam abortions were successfully performed. Prior to this announcement, God was already at work in Sue's heart. She began attending church and listening to Christian radio. Slowly, she realized that God says the unborn child is fully human, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, and that she was working for an organization that was destroying life. God showed Sue her need of a Savior, and then he immediately went to work on her heart to change how she viewed her work and purpose. I asked the Lord for forgiveness, and I was directed to the verse in Genesis that says we are created in God's image, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It hit me at that moment that every life matters. From the moment of fertilization, there is unique DNA created by God with a purpose and plan. After becoming a Christian, Sue refused to perform the ultrasounds and was fired. More than that, she took her clinic to court for fraudulent billing practices, claiming Planned Parenthood was failing to report kickbacks on the abortion drugs. From her position at a small clinic in small-town America, she was suddenly thrust into the national limelight, but she stood her ground. Once she spilled the beans, the Storm Lake Clinic eventually closed its doors. Her testimony was a black eye against the abortion giant. Sue vowed to do everything she could to save future babies from abortion. She now manages a pregnancy crisis center in her small town. When a woman comes into the center who is considering abortion, she almost always changes her mind. Once she sees her baby on the ultrasound, and hears his or her heartbeat. She once justified family planning because it supposedly protected kids who would not be taken care of. Now she spends her life doing all she can to defend every unborn child that she can. 
Yet another story of God's redemption, even in the darkest of places. A Healed Heart Nearly one out of four women in the United States will have had an abortion by the time they are 45. Many of those women are your friends, neighbors, and yes, even women you know at church. Camille Cates is one of those women. From the time she was a child, Camille attended church. She knew the account of Adam and Eve, Moses parting the Red Sea, David slaying Goliath, and the rest. But for Camille, they didn't seem like ordinary people with real problems. All the people in the Bible felt like superheroes to me. I didn't realize until I got older that they were just like me, sinners saved by grace. I knew the truths in the Bible, but I didn't know how the Bible applied to me. While attending middle school, Camille was envious of all the popular girls who had boyfriends. When she got to high school, she started receiving attention from boys, which made her feel special and wanted, just like the popular girls in middle school. Looking back on her high school days, she now realizes anybody can have a relationship, but do they know how to have a God-honoring one? Nobody taught me what that looked like. Camille calls herself the average Christian teenager in contemporary American culture. I was floating through life, one foot in church, one foot in the world. I wasn't in God's Word, even though I heard it multiple times a week. It didn't resonate with me. By the time she was 15, Camille had become sexually active, which eventually led to an unexpected pregnancy at age 17. When her mom found out, she asked Camille if she wanted to have an abortion. Even though she was young, Camille knew she wanted to have her baby. Despite her parents' initial hesitation, they supported Camille, and she soon gave birth to a daughter, Lauren. Camille finished high school and started college courses, while also working a couple of part-time jobs. Even though God had extended me a lot of grace, I had yet to be disciplined. I still didn't fully understand how God wanted to change me, and I just continued to crave a romantic relationship. It's what I was living for, instead of living for Christ. A few years later, Camille found herself in yet another relationship, and she once again found herself pregnant. One night, she was working at one of her part-time jobs, and her boyfriend was at home babysitting her daughter. Her world was turned upside down when her distraught mom ran into her workplace in a panic and told her they needed to go to the hospital right away. Something had happened to her daughter, Lauren. That 24-hour period was a blur. Social services took me aside at the hospital and told me my boyfriend had sexually assaulted and shaken Lauren to death. All I could think about was the horrible trauma my daughter had experienced at the hands of a wicked man, and I was carrying that man's baby. After the family had said their goodbyes to Lauren, and before they had even left the hospital, Camille's parents were pressuring her, you have to have an abortion now. There is no other choice. No choice. Camille recalls not knowing what to do. I was walking so deep in sin and had nobody to show me how to walk through this with the Lord. Without Christian mentorship, I sank deeper and deeper into a pit. She didn't stop to consider the sovereignty of God and his working all things, even tragedy, together for our good, with the intention of conforming us to the image of Christ, like Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 29 tells us. Four days after they buried Lauren, Camille flew to Dallas, Texas, where her parents thought nobody would know them, and Camille aborted her second child. Eventually, she decided to move to Dallas in hopes she could start over and forget about the pain of the past, but that's not how God works. You carry your heart with you. All the same stuff that I was wrestling with in my hometown of Amarillo was waiting for me in Dallas. My heart was still rebellious and hurting, and I hadn't repented of my sinful choices and turned to the loving grace and mercy of Jesus. 
As the one-year anniversary of Lauren's death approached, Camille received a call. It was her parents telling her the capital murder trial of her ex-boyfriend was delayed again, dashing hopes that she could just put this all behind her. The Lord had other plans, as he always does, when we haven't resolved the pain and sin of our past. I didn't have any closure. I remember being in Dallas in yet another bad relationship. Then I was done. I moved back home. One night I cried out to the Lord. I knew my lifestyle wasn't going to satisfy me. I had been chasing after every relationship, except the one that I had neglected with God. But I knew I finally wanted only God and God alone. It wasn't long after her repentance and return to Christ that Camille met the man who is now her husband. He already knew about my abortion, but still wanted to pursue a relationship with me. God used that to show me more about the broad reach of the gospel. He still loved me and wanted me, regardless of my past. That's just like God. When Eve was deceived by the serpent, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, and sinned against God, she hid from God, and he went looking for her. I was a Christian led astray and hiding from God. Even after Camille got married and once again became active in her church, she still hadn't come to terms with her first daughter's death. The murder had occurred in 1992. It wasn't until 1996 that the trial finally arrived. When someone you love is hurt, you want justice. But on this earth, you'll never get perfect justice. Even though he had assaulted and murdered my daughter, I realized I had aborted his baby. I was no different than he was. Abortion is violent and murder. I saw that we both needed Christ. I now pray for him daily. For him to come to Christ would truly be the ultimate way for our just God to deal with his sin. Camille also realized she'd never dealt with the guilt of her abortion. I desperately wanted a baby when I got married. I wanted to fill that ache from losing my daughter Lauren and the child I aborted. I was scared to death God wasn't going to let me have another baby. But I learned to entrust these things to God, who in His sovereignty gave me three more children. This journey to finding hope and healing in Jesus for the pain and sin of her past began at a conference when she grabbed some pamphlets at a booth hosted by Healing Hearts, a biblically-based ministry that helps women heal from abortions and other tragedies. She soon began attending an in-depth Bible study for women seeking hope in Christ. Most post-abortive women and men struggle with shame, guilt, and condemnation, yet there is hope, freedom, and healing in Christ. We do not understand suffering and sin properly without understanding how it started with the rebellious choices of a real Adam and Eve, who sinned against God in the same way we all do. Their sin separated them from the Holy Creator, and they could not do anything to save themselves, but He could restore them through the sacrifice of His righteous Son, Jesus, on our behalf. Camille has been serving with Healing Hearts Ministries International since 1999. Through her work, she counsels other women who have experienced trauma and helps teenagers discover God's promise of a new life in Christ, just as she once did. For those wanting an abortion, it often looks like there is no way out. Mistakenly, I thought there was no way God could make anything good come from my situation. I thought abortion was the only option, but God always makes a way of escape and turns our stories of ruin into stories of grace. That article by a staff writer at Answers Magazine, Melissa Webb, is titled Healing in Even the Darkest Places. You can purchase a back issue from our website, AnswersMagazine.com. This next article looks beyond the abortion debate to the reason Christians celebrate life, no matter what the challenge is.
We were thrilled with the news of our first child, a son whom we would name Kieran after struggling with infertility for several years. Like most parents, we began dreaming about our life with him. Soon after we found out, God was knitting him together in my womb, tossing around a football in the backyard, teaching him about Jesus, starting the first day of school, helping him earn a driver's license, shepherding him to become a man who would love God and his family. The Lord was so good in giving us this child. His birth was eventful, and at Kieran's two-month checkup, the doctor heard a heart murmur, which led to a diagnosis of supravalvular aortic stenosis, obstruction of the aorta. Kieran also wasn't gaining weight, wasn't sleeping well, and spent most of his time screaming. We trudged to our local children's hospital almost weekly, visiting one expert after another, trying to find answers that would explain the strange cluster of symptoms. Finally, when he reached nine months, after multiple blood tests and more doctor visits, a geneticist called me and said he has Williams syndrome. With those words, we were abruptly shoved onto a path that we hadn't even been aware existed. I called my husband with the results, and he left work immediately. We spent the rest of the evening sitting on our couch, grieving, and trying to figure out what Kiernan's new future looked like. As we would later find out, Williams syndrome is a spontaneous deletion of about 25 genes occurring at conception on the long arm of the seventh chromosome. Researching it brought up phrases such as physical disabilities, intellectual disabilities, developmental delays, speech delays, fine motor issues, visual spatial problems, IEPs, heart condition, blood pressure problems, renal stenosis, speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, and the list went on. As tears flowed down my cheeks, I remember thinking, there must be a good God in the midst of all this. It can't be any other way. Giving space to pain. Through our Bible study over the years, we knew that the pain this diagnosis caused could only make sense if there was a good God who created a very good world that sin has corrupted. If there is no infinitely good God of the Bible, if there is no way to say, this is what life should look like, if we are all just haphazard arrangements of chemicals bound together over time, then the term disability is meaningless. It would mean that this random arrangement of chemicals isn't any better or worse off than any other arrangement of chemicals. And the pain we felt as we grappled with this new diagnosis had no logical basis. Yet even with that knowledge settled firmly in our hearts and minds, we continued to grieve. My friend Georgia shared a thought that helped us give space to the hurt. Knowing the truth doesn't take away the pain, nor should it. Part of the curse is experiencing the pain of death and all that accompanies it. Like so many others, as we picked up the fragments of our broken dreams and began to piece them back together in new ways, we tried to make sense of the puzzle we were working on. Did God create Williams syndrome? Is there purpose in disability? Who fashioned Kieran's chromosomes? We were firm in our pro-life belief that the Lord knits every baby together fearfully and wonderfully from the moment of fertilization. Psalm 139, verse 14. But where do those with disabilities fit into that belief? Was our son really a masterpiece of the Creator? As we've mined the depths of the Bible's teaching on God and His sovereignty, we've come to accept that, just as He is involved in the intricate workings of the universe, He is also involved in the intricate workings of conception. As such, in His goodness, He gave our son, and each one of us, a specific genetic combination, which in our son's case included a deletion on part of one of his chromosomes. 
When God called Moses to ask the Egyptian pharaoh to release his people, Moses made excuses. He pointed out to his creator that he was slow of speech and tongue. So the Lord responded to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. In this passage, God is taking credit for making some people blind and some deaf. Reflect on that with me for a moment. Over the years, we've let that truth sink into our souls. We run toward the belief that while the world may call Williams syndrome a spontaneous mutation, we call it a providential one. Before you balk at that, think about this. The genetic mutation that pervades every cell in our son's body has visible effects, from his facial features to his heart and kidney problems to his learning disabilities. Yet, that's true of all of us. Much that we associate with our basic identity is influenced by our genes. Every one of us is suffering from 6,000 years of the curse. In fact, which one of us would say that we have a completely perfect body and mind? Our problems may not be as apparent as Kieran's, but we have them just the same. And we were all knit together carefully and with great purpose in all our physical imperfections by the same good, kind, loving creator for his purposes. To put it another way, how many mutations or which specific mutations separate the normal people from those with disorders? If, as pro-life people, you're not prepared to say that God created and fashioned each and every person, at what point do we say, yes, you manifest the handiwork of God, but you don't? One theologian defined disability this way. We are disabled to the degree that we cannot properly fulfill the creation mandate in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where God speaks to Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it. Dr. Mark Talbot's message, Longing for Wholeness, Chronic Suffering and Christian Hope, DesiringGod.org. How many of us can say that we're able to perfectly fulfill God's dominion command? Of course, we understand that our actions have consequences. In some cases, the actions of parents before the birth of their child can have dire consequences on the baby. For example, if a mother consumes too much alcohol while she's pregnant, her baby can be born with fetal alcohol syndrome. We also understand that something may happen to the baby during development, such as what happened with my cousin, Karen, who was born with hydrocephalus. The doctors didn't catch it until she was three months old, leaving her severely disabled. Until she passed away a few years ago, she was nonverbal and used a wheelchair to get around. Yet God is still the ultimate author of life, and he is in control. And we have the hope that we will see her again in heaven, where she'll have a perfect body, free from the curse. Because we have received the gift of salvation through Jesus, we look forward to experiencing eternal life with her as she runs and plays and converses in ways we can only imagine. Created with disabilities for a purpose. As we dove into the world of therapies and ongoing doctor visits, engaging with those who were walking on the same path we were, the prophet Isaiah reminded us that each individual is handcrafted by the Creator to display His glory. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. See Romans chapter 11, 36. And we learned what Jesus, the Creator of our Son, taught His disciples. As Jesus passed by, He saw a man blind from birth, and His disciples asked Him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. John chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Although mutations, diseases, disabilities, and suffering 
are part of the curse and are the result of our general sin in Adam. They aren't necessarily a direct result of any specific sin that we've committed. Jesus makes this clear here. Although the man and his parents were sinners, his blindness wasn't the direct result of a sin that they had committed. This man was blind, and the rest of us were also created as we are in order to display the amazing works of God in our lives. Kieran is a walking banner for the works of God, the real source of our value. We've seen an argument among the pro-life community that somewhat reflects Jesus' teaching, but it puts the emphasis in the wrong place. In a Williams Syndrome group on social media, someone posted her thoughts about a mom who had her unborn baby killed because the baby had been diagnosed with Williams Syndrome. If she only knew how much of a blessing our children are, if she could only see how much they contribute to society, surely they would change their minds. Another video that occasionally floats around the pro-life community features the singer Andrea Bocelli's story of how the doctors urged his mother to kill him before he was born because he was blind. The video's message is, look at how much Andrea Bocelli has contributed to our society through his music. Think of what we would be missing if he had been aborted. What's the difficulty with these two examples? The danger is that the worth of a person is tied up in his or her contributions, his or her work, instead of each person's inherent value as an image bearer of God. If we begin to assign the value of a human life on what we do rather than who we are as people created in God's image, then we shift the argument for life from an absolute standard, God says, do not intentionally take the life of someone who bears my image, to one that is utilitarian at best. It makes some people less valuable and more disposable than others. It's still difficult. It is certainly true that each child is a gift and a blessing from God, and we've experienced that with Kieran. He has a quick smile, a huge laugh, a friendly countenance, and a love for God that puts me to shame. But disabilities bring difficulty as well. It is hard to watch your child struggle with tasks a child who is developing typically can do easily. Continual hospital visits are overwhelming. Medical bills rack up quickly. When we contend for the value of life because of the good he brings to the world, instead of emphasizing that our value is based on God's word, we may perhaps miss another purpose in suffering and disability. I appreciate Paul's perspective on suffering in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. He begins, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Incidentally, Paul's despair here and his next comments show how false that old adage really is. God won't give you any more than you can handle. Then he concludes, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. We serve a God who gives grace for every day and every situation. Disability and suffering show us very quickly that we cannot rely on ourselves and that we desperately need the Holy Spirit to work in our lives to bring comfort, strength, wisdom, and all His fruit. These difficulties can lead us to a deeper relationship with our Savior and His Word as we depend on Him. Even in disability, God is working to conform us to the image of His Son. When we gloss over the hard parts of disability, we aren't being honest about real life in a cursed, 
fallen world, and we can't accurately minister to others who find themselves in these difficult situations. Paul was honest about what he was going through. He pointed to God, and he invited fellow believers to share in what he was going through so that others will see the works of God and praise the Lord. Sadly, in many cases, disabilities cause people to turn away from following Christ. But our attitude should be the opposite. Christians of all people should recognize that each person bears the image of God. When the Lord brings someone with a disability across our path, we need to seek to get to know him or her first as an individual, finding out who he or she is as a person. And in some cases, we might discover how we can be the tangible hands and feet of Christ, not out of pity, but out of a love for Jesus and those he has created. In fact, Jesus commanded, When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Luke chapter 14, verses 13 to 14. In God's family, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 22. Having Kieran in our lives has made this passage take on a much more personal meaning for us. Throughout our journey, the Word of God has been powerful in changing and forming our own perspective on those with disabilities. Most importantly, we are thankful that God, in His goodness, has given our indispensable Son for His good purposes. That article, An Unlikely Masterpiece, was written by Stacia McKeever. Her personal story is gripping to me as a father of four and grandfather of 17. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed these articles, there are hundreds more at our website, AnswersMagazine.com. The links to today's articles are listed in our show notes, and I encourage you to subscribe to receive the magazine in your mailbox every other month. You will love that you're better able to share and defend your faith. I'm Dale Mason, publisher at Answers Magazine, and for the entire team, God bless.